Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can even earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome our host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, how are you doing? Hope uh, wherever you're listening had a chance to have a good holiday, maybe get some time away with the family and friends and all that. Uh, speaking before we started recording, I got a little chance to do that, and I was, I was grateful to do that. So, But I'm uh, raring to go. I'm glad to be back in the podcast and glad for you for listening. As always, thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to do so. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're a, a frequent listener, welcome. Fortunately, don't have to hear me blather on alone because joining us is Dr. John Swagel. And John, you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jeff. My name is John Swagel, and, and I'm a pharmacist practicing up in Mason City, Iowa, in a family medicine residency program. Uh, I'm a clinical associate professor at the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. And uh, a lot of the times in my practice site, we, we deal with patients on the outpatient side, uh, inpatient, uh, and certainly I, I also touch upon a little bit in palliative medicine, and I work with Hospice of North Iowa. So we see a lot of patients and see a lot of patients that uh, pertain to uh, today's topic. So happy to be here and, and looking forward to the discussion. I appreciate it, John. Yeah, John is, if, if you're from Iowa, John is, is well known as, as a pharmacotherapy expert, especially in pain. So we especially appreciate him taking the time because today's talk is going to be the brand new, uh, literally hot off the press, um, burning my fingers as we're reading it, uh, guidelines from the American Academy of Neurology uh, on an update on uh, treatment of painful diabetic neuropathy, which is obviously a big, big problem that we see all the time. I see it as an inpatient, and I'm sure those of you listening to my voice here uh, see it quite a bit. Uh, this is an update from the 2017 guidelines, and so I, I think it's it's very timely. There have been several new studies that have come out in that intervening time uh, talking about this, so again, just kind of right hot off the press and we're going to dive right into it. So the guidelines point out that it is actually diabetes is the most common cause of peripheral neuropathy, uh, accounting for almost half of cases in the United States. And it occurs in about 16% of patients with diabetes. It's something that I think with the explosion of diabetes cases we've seen in the last 10 years, certainly I've seen those numbers go way up. I get phone calls and, and you know, we tried all this. What is it? What works? This isn't working. What can we do sort of stuff? And it is different than visceral pain, right? So, I mean, because the mechanism is different, people often will complain that the sensation of pain is not the kind of classic kind of pressure stabbing pain that people talk about. It's often, you know, a burning type pain or electrical type pain sort of stuff, though they, they can have, you know, classic pain symptoms as well. And the reason they thought that it was needed to update the guidelines again was this, this kind of, you know, we need to take a look at some of the studies that have been out in the last several years, but also a recent study from a healthcare claim study found that the most commonly prescribed prescription prescriptions for pain for peripheropathy, what was number one, and this was uh, uh, kind of disappointing to me, was opioids. So even though uh, as far back as, as, as uh, 2015, you know, there were studies coming out suggesting that opioids don't work for the vast majority of, of peripheral neuropathy, this recent health claim study basically said, nope, we're still using lots of opioids for peripheral neuropathy. So that I'm sure was very uh, disappointing to the people who wrote this and said, hey, we need to, we need to take a look at the, the literature and kind of reaffirm that opioids are probably not the, the drugs you want to be using. 
following opioids. Number uh, two was gabapentin, big surprise, I think there. Number three, uh, pregabalin, and then duloxetine, uh, amitriptyline, and venlafaxine were in this uh, healthcare claim study. So this is an update of, of the previous guideline. They did what they did in the previous guidelines, which was basically to do a gigantic meta-analysis. And so they searched the experts in their group, got together, they searched Medline, you know, Cochrane, Embase, all the kind of things you'd think they do for meta-analysis. They then looked at, at relevant peer-reviewed articles that met their inclusion criteria that were in English, and they tried to focus almost entirely on randomized controlled trials, though they, they did look at other studies as well. The uh, randomized controlled trials did get uh, a preference, especially any studies that were active comparator studies, which you don't see a lot, period, in almost any area of medicine, but certainly uh, not in pain as well. So, you know, they said, well, yeah, we're looking at, at placebo-controlled studies, certainly, but we also want to take a look at, at any active comparator to help prescribers maybe, you know, say, gee, maybe this one drug's better than another. The, you know, the problem with a lot of pain control studies, and, and I suspect John Swagel would agree, is that, you know, what is your definition for good pain control? And is it 50% reduction? Is it 80% reduction? Is it 30% reduction? In this study, they said that they would consider studies beneficial if the active treatment had a 30% reduction in pain that was considered a success in clinical trials, that would be considered beneficial, basically. So they then took a look at all this and kind of brought it together and gave up guidelines of, of what to select for treatment of, of nerve pornopathy. One of the first things they talk about, and this is something that I do try to kind of hammer home to my patients who have diabetes, is that, you know, the most important thing to do when you have peripheral neuropathy and, and diabetes is to treat the diabetes, right? You know, if the longer your diabetes is out of control, the worse the peripheral neuropathy is going to get. And while, yes, you know, once someone has developed peripheral neuropathy, the odds of them developing, you know, getting completely better if they, you know, have a complete lifestyle change and get their A1C completely under control. Yeah, I admit that's probably not going to be all that high, but you certainly don't want the pain to get worse. And the longer you let your, your diabetes out of control, the worse that the diabetic neuropathy is going to be, and not just for pain, but other neuropathic symptoms as well. And then you start getting into central neuropathies and all that other stuff as well. But bottom line is, I think, you know, first and foremost, and, and I guidelines point this out as well, that the first thing we need to tell our diabetic patients is, you know, you've got to keep your, your diabetes under control. That's the best way you can do to make sure that at a minimum, the peripheral neuropathy doesn't get worse, basically. Then they dive into their analysis from the meta-analysis, basically. And what they, what they found was, uh, interestingly, that they looked at randomized controlled trials and they looked at what's called the standardized mean difference. And so basically, the higher the standardized mean difference compared to the comparator or placebo, the uh, theoretically higher effect size you're going to see, basically, with the treatment. And so they looked at gabapentinoids. They looked at sodium channel blockers. They looked at SNRIs. There's a couple studies that looked at the combination of SNRIs. NRIs and opioids, and they looked at TCAs. And then they basically looked at the evidence and said it's either probably or possibly more likely than placebo to improve pain, and then the level of confidence that they have to make that recommendation. They point out that of the studies they read, the most highest number of studies, which is probably not a surprise, is with the gabapentinoids. And they looked at, a, at when they brought all the patients together, it was about 3,500 patients in their meta-analysis and found not a big surprise that it is probably more likely than placebo to improve pain with a moderate level of confidence and a um, standard mean difference of 0.44. So pretty decent and definitely above placebo. All the other uh, interventions that we've talked about were, were lower. They had fewer number of articles and less data supported. Standard mean differences were, were higher pretty much across the board or slightly higher across the board compared to gabapentinoids. Interestingly, um, and this is probably because uh, the studies were fairly small, they did look at T 
TCAs, and they actually found an effect size that was was quite high. And the TCA they point out was studied in, in their articles was all imatriptyline, and they found that the effect size was actually higher than the opioids, the, the sodium channel blockers, SNRIs, or gabapentinoids. Despite that, because of the small number of patients in the meta-analysis, only only 139 patients total, that they did not give it a high level of, of recommendation. They actually said possibly more likely than placebo to improve that pain, and the, the confidence was low. So it's, it's kind of a disparity when you read the guideline that if you look at the meta-analysis in the forest plot, the TCAs look better than everything else, but they point out that that's probably due to a small sample size and a studies that probably weren't as well conducted as, as some of the other things. So that's, I thought was kind of interesting. They don't come out and point and say, this is our drug of choice for treating diabetic peripheral neuropathy pain. They basically say that uh, when you look in total at all the data, that doesn't seem to be any one big drug that substantially improves pain compared to another drug. They also point out that the number of comparator studies are relatively low. So it's, it's hard to make those comparators uh, anyway. So they basically say, okay, look, gabapentinoids are reasonable, SNRIs are reasonable, and they, of course, call out duloxetines. It probably has the most data to support it. They say TCAs are reasonable. I was a little bit disappointed that they said amitriptyline is the one they would recommend. I've always tried to, especially in elderly patients, to, to move patients away from amitriptyline to disipramine or nortriptyline because they tend to have fewer anticholinergic side effects. But they, they say that they really had no choice but to make that recommendation because amitriptyline was the thing that was studied. The only sodium channel blocker they point out is possibly more likely than placebo to improve pain is valproic acid. And there's uh, several warning effects or, or warnings they have saying, you know, because that's, you know, yes, you could certainly use valproic acid as a treatment for diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, but it has a number of adverse effects, a number of bad drug interactions that they would not recommend its first line or even second line use. And, and they say that really it, it should be kind of way down the line in, in what you should be considered for treatment. They do uh, talk a little bit about lamotrigine, lacosamide, oxcarbazine, and things along those lines. Uh, lamotrigine is probably the, the drug that has the most data other than valproic acid as a sodium channel blocker. And they say that it actually may be more likely in, in the probably level uh, to improve pain with, with a mean difference of 0.56. But again, they point out that it's those are smaller studies and that even though lamotrigine is pretty well tolerated, we have a number of other drugs that probably should be tried first before lamotrigine. So I think what I kind of took away from the sodium channel blockade effect was valproic acid should be way, way down if tried at all. And lamotrigine may be tried, but again, shouldn't be first or even second line. And then finally, they go into a very strongly worded statement that says opioids should not be used for the treatment of diabetic neuropathic pain. And, and they're pretty clear about that. They also talk a little bit about the fact that tramadol sometimes kind of gets snuck in as, you know, well, hey, we're not really as bad as opioids. And I think they do a good job in the guideline of saying, no, actually, that's not true. You know, there's a reason pharmacists call tramadol, tramadont. It does have all the side effects and problems that opioids do. And again, they do say that antepenadol, which is a drug that I never really understood why it was on the market in the first place, probably uh, should not be used for the treatment of, of diabetic neuropathic pain. The only other thing I found was interesting is then they talk about a whole bunch of other, you know, medications either on the U.S. market or, you know, don't have very much data and, and say either possibly or probably, et cetera, et cetera. They do point out that Inco Balboa has a one class two study that shows that it is possibly more likely than the placebo to improve pain. It's interesting that they, you know, you think that they maybe would just comment on that and then like leave it alone, but they actually spend quite about a lot of time in the guideline talking about, well, you know, if you have a patient who's really interested in trying a, you know, a, an herbal or a natural approach that it's reasonable to try. And I, I, I mean, I was actually kind of surprised. I mean, they didn't jump up and down and say, yep, you absolutely should be using this, but they say it's, it is considered reasonable to consider trying it in patients who want to try a natural approach. So, you know, 
know, again, that's that's probably the highest level of recommendation I've ever seen for an herbal every anywhere for any indication in my life. So I was kind of surprised they went out on a kind of a limb and said, yeah, it's reasonable to try that. You know, I mean, again, given the data that they had, that was kind of interesting. They talk a little bit about uh, topical medications. Uh, they mentioned that capsaicin is possibly more likely than placebo to improve pain with a couple of small studies and then a couple other things that, again, are, are either going to be used in the United States or are going to have to be compounded, things like topical clonidine, things along those lines that, you know, I, certainly I see uh, some compounding pharmacies try to do, but just they note that there's just not a lot of data out there. So what I kind of, you know, walked away from, from reading the guidelines is that, you know, absolutely, we should not be using opioids. And I think they just reaffirm that, that you really have your choice of TCAs, gabapentinoids, SNRIs, I think, and you can try any of those. And if you get partial response, you can add on a medication that's certainly reasonable to try. And then down way, way down the road are the sodium channel blockers and valproic acid and, and lamotrigine may be tried in a case like that. And then, you know, again, surprisingly kind of, yeah, if you have a patient who's like, no, doc, I want to try something, you know, natural. Okay, well, I guess we could try ginkgo and see if it works. I guess it can't really hurt most people. So it seems reasonable, but again, kind of surprising on that. So that's kind of what I walked away from. Again, I'm, I'm not a, not a pain expert, but uh, fortunately we have one with us with, with again, Dr. John Swagel. So what I was hoping John would do would be to kind of operationalize some of this. You know, we see tons of people on gabapentin. We see tons of people on pregabalin and, and duloxetine. You know, what are some pearls? What are some things that the expert in the fields kind of see with this and, and, and can kind of tell the generalist uh, pharmacist or general uh, you know, prescriber about, about what we should be watching out and, and a decent approach. So John, what do you think about the guidelines and what are some pearls you can give us to give the listeners about a semi-logical uh, way to approach treating this? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. So, and I think, you know, one of the things you had mentioned earlier, which is, I'll just reiterate as well, that I absolutely agree on, treat the underlying disease state, in this case, diabetes. And that's similar to many, many conditions that I know Jeff sees as well, where, you know, you end up getting treating the the ramifications, I guess, of having a long-standing disease. So that that is vitally important to to try to get on top of the diabetes, prevent this from happening. Hopefully, yeah. So in this guideline, just so the listeners are aware, and the guidelines kind of mention this too, this is limited to painful uh, diabetic polyneuropathy. So that doesn't mean that you can take this information and have a generalizable approach to all types of neuropathies. I right. do think that this probably would fit in with somebody with post-hepatic neuralgia, but it's not. Going to fit in for other types of neuropathies necessarily. Yep. Uh, it doesn't mean the medications we use are different, but it just, just so the, the listeners are aware. So, you know, my take on this, when I read through it, you know, it, it's very similar to what Jeff kind of highlighted earlier. And, and really, you know, for the practicing pharmacist, is there anything brand new that came out of this? My answer is probably not. You know, right. there's a lot of the stuff that we do currently that these guidelines are sort of highlighting, which really is, is somewhat uh, of a confidence builder because we're, we're really practicing what we can uh, supported by the evidence, uh, doing the best we can. So there are a few highlights that I do want to mention to the listeners if they read this article, which I do encourage them to do. First of all, is don't get lost in the details. This article has a lot of, especially when they're analyzing the, you know, the, the trials that are out there, as Jeff had mentioned, they, they end up coming down to 149 uh, studies that they assessed and looking at some of the numbers. And, you know, when you're, when you're looking at some of these things and trying to find the standardized mean difference, if this number is bigger than that number versus not, right. don't, don't get too lost in that because there's a lot of heterogeneity in some of these trials. There's different dosages. It's just a lot of nuances. And so it's really difficult to do. Uh, but that being said, and looking at these medications, just, just some pearls that I found when I, when I went through this and the listeners, if you, if you pull the article, there's a table in there, table one, 
And it talks about all the different medications that they used and, you know, the duration is based on the studies. A few highlights to kind of come out with this, uh, first of which is on, on duloxetine, which I think is probably the SNRI of choice. Most people use this. Cost may be a barrier. It's getting a little bit better. But the dosing that they looked at in the studies was, was up to 60 milligrams a day. You might see people on 120. There is some debate if 120 is better than 60 or not. And so... I generally shoot for 60 and there isn't anything that says you can't push to 120, but just, just so you know, there are some people that would, would think that it's not going to have any more benefit. The second and probably the biggest thing of the SNRIs is looking at venlafaxine. In the trials that they looked at, the dosing was 150 to 225. And that's an important point because if you have somebody on 37.5 of venlafaxine, it's just another SSRI. Exactly. So yeah. You're not getting that, that norepinephrine aspect until you get above 150. So that's an important point for people to understand when they're, when they're looking at venlafaxine. Gabapentin, I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I agree with Jeff. It, it's arguably the, the, the one most people go to in the situation. And, and I, I would probably say it's, it's still up there at the top as, as one of the first line options along with, uh, with the drug like duloxetine. The only caveat is, you know, the dosing range they had in that table went up to 3,600 milligrams. And I, I have never been a fan of that. I'm just going to say my target for gabapentin is somewhere around 1,200, maybe 1,500 milligrams at most. Part of that is because gabapentin has abilities to be abused. Oh, absolutely. So, it, yeah. It's it's something that you got to be aware of, and but I know some people have pushed that dose. I'm just not a fan of that, just so people know. And the kinetics are worse too with the higher dosages. You get lower percent absorbed, that sort of thing. So, the other thing that you know Jeff had mentioned on on the sodium channel antagonist, and and I agree, valproic acid is not a drug we really use that much anymore. So put it put it down the list. Lamotrigine does have some okay data. The doses that they're looking at were 200 to 400 milligrams. Which any of you that deal with dosing of lamotrigine, you know it's going to take forever and a day to get to that dose because of the titration scheme. Right. So it's just some, sort of a nuance. We don't really see a lot of lamotrigine used because of the fear of Stevens-Johnson, but, but it is out there certainly in, in more mood disorders, uh, bipolar affective disorder in particular, it's, it's got a, a good use for that. The tricyclic amitriptyline. Uh, I'm glad you brought this up, Jeff. It's one that is not surprising that the data is all on amitriptyline because, you know, as all of us know, these are all generics. So we're not going to have any brand new randomized controlled trials coming out with nortriptyline or disipramine. But I prefer nortriptyline. And it, it is the metabolite of amitriptyline, which is why I prefer it. Also has less of the anticholinergic effects, as Jeff mentioned earlier. The only difference I have from the guidelines, and not against the guidelines necessarily, just what happened in the studies, the dosing scheme they have in there is 75 to 100 milli 150 milligrams, which is pretty high. Right. Uh, you're going to see side effects at that dosing, and that's more antidepressant dosing. So we, if we're going to use amitriptyline, we'll start at 10 or 25 milligrams, and even nortriptyline, 10 or 25 milligrams, and go up to maybe 50 or 75, but probably not push it beyond that. And the last thing in that table they had listed was capsation. And, and I want the listeners to, to certainly understand the data they're looking at is not for the cream, not for the over-the-counter cream. They're looking at the 8% patch. And that's a completely different animal compared to what we see with the over-the-counter creams. I'm not saying the over-the-counter creams don't work, but just so you know, the evidence that they're looking at came from the patch. So just take that with a grain of salt as well. 
I don't know, Jeff, do you want to go through some of the recommendations or do you want to? Yeah, no, we certainly can. And, and I mean, just kind of getting your take on stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. I, maybe just some questions, because I mean, some questions I get asked all the time. I'm sure, sure like your take on stuff when we can kind of take a look at this. So the gabapentinoids, you know, you know, I, I really appreciate what you were saying. Yeah, I, I cringe when I see somebody come in on 3,600 milligrams of gabapentin. Yeah. Basically, you're eating a handful of gabapentin capsules for breakfast, because that's what right. you're pretty much going to have to do. So, yeah. you know, a question I get asked 10 million times, and I'm sure you do too, is I had a patient that gabapentin didn't work for or pregabalin didn't work for can i switch into the other and will would it work if the first gabapentinoid doesn't work they basically say in the guidelines well there's not a lot of data but you could try it you know yeah. you know clinically what's your experience with that yeah, exactly i'm glad you brought that up because the guidelines they, they looked at things and based on classes and exactly. the suggestion and one of the recommendations they had if you if you fail something from one class try a different class and you know, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but just, you know, so the listeners know there, there are some nuances among these different drugs. So uh, yeah, Jeff, to answer your question, if we have somebody who fails gabapentin, pregabalin's not out of the loop. That's certainly an option that they could try because they are different. Even though they're both gabapentinoids, they are just a little bit different. And there are some nuances with these medications so that you could try one or the other. I wouldn't say if somebody was on venlafaxine at 225 milligrams a day and it's not working, would I try duloxetine? I might cringe a little bit about that, but right. it could be an option. But definitely between gabapentin and pregabalin, there, there is enough differences among those two drugs that I'd be okay trying the other one if they failed the first one. That's good to hear. And, that, and that's usually what I recommend. I mean, you know, just the bottom line is we don't really understand entirely how the gabapentinoids work to improve pain. So it's, you know, it's certainly reasonable to try one and, and see if it works. I think as you pointed out, it's always cost, right? You know, I think I get more questions about, my, well, the insurance, their insurance no longer pays for pregabalin. So now I got to convert them over to gabapentin and then we have to try to do our best to do that. So right, yeah, for sure, you know, the deloxetine, yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, uh, um, 60 seems to be my target when I'm, people ask me, you know, where we want to go for them. I see it's pretty well taught. Tolerated. Have you seen any weird side effects or things unusual to deloxine compared to say venlafaxine? No, I think between those two, they're, they're both fairly well tolerated. Obviously, any medication can have some, some adverse effects, but I really haven't run across too many difficulties with it. So I would say, you know, it's probably fairly low and, but I've not had patients that, that complained enough to, to stop the medication, especially yeah. if it's working. Exactly. That's, that's kind of been my take is, is I've, I, I think I've rarely seen people stop deloxetine for side effects just because it just didn't work. So, I mean, that's, I think when the drug first came out, there was this like, oh, it causes liver problems. And it's like, well, does it really, you know, actually, yeah, it might cause liver problems in patients with existing liver problems, but it seems to be pretty safe. And now that it is generic and the price is starting to come down. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be a very valuable already a very valuable and going to be even more valuable as we kind of go along. Another question I was going to ask you is, I'm not trying to impugn compounding pharmacists making stuff, but I mean, you see people making, you know, amitriptyline cream and tramadol cream yeah. and ketamine cream and all these creams. And, and right. I, there's, of course, no, no solid data. So, you know, again, it really kind of, kind, of, kind of comes down to what's your personal experience? Have you seen that used? What's your personal experience with it? Again, knowing that we don't have solid, you know, randomized controlled trial data, you know, we kind of kind of go into the realm of the art of medicine here. So what's kind of your take on that? You know? Yeah, absolutely. And we do see it here too. Uh, we're, we're fairly close to, to Rochester. And so we get, we, right. we started getting some things coming out of Mayo and, and, and people were recommending it. And we had pharmacies that were making it. And, uh, and I agree, there's not evidence supporting it. So it's interesting because there's a lot of things that are compounded and, and, and done topically, a lot of PLO gels and that sort of thing. And the evidence supporting that is just just not there. It's harder right. to do studies on those types of things, et cetera. So generally speaking, if somebody is using something and it's not harming them, but it's helping them, I'm okay with it. 
Right. So if they want to try it, and, and that I think kind of gets into this idea about the shared decision-making, right? Exactly. That we all talk about. Exactly. And, and some people like those topical things and the guidelines right. point that out too, but kind of along those lines on the lines on the non-farm approaches, one of the big things that they really stress, and I do as well, is try to get, you know, exercise, try to get that cognitive behavioral therapy, those types mm-hmm. of things that have more evidence supporting their use, but definitely exercise helps. Yeah. So it's, it's a shared thing. And, and so, yeah, we, we do get those those scripts as well, or we see those scripts as well for the topical things. And, and, you know, if, if people feel like they want to try them and there's no harm in it, I'm okay with it. I don't, right. I don't really. I mean, yeah, it, it's certainly, I'm, I agree with you. It's not something that I'm going to, you know, fall on my sword and, and resign and protest about or anything, right. you know, I get those point blank questions. Well, Hey, you know, you know, my patient said that their brother's sister's friend has peripheral neuropathy too. And they got this, you know, this ketamine cream and it works like a, a dream. Can you, what do you think about that? And I end up going, there's no studies, but you know, yeah, I kind of follow your approach. If they can afford it, because <laughs> right. insurance ain't going to pay for it, you know, so if they could afford it, you know, yeah, I think it's reasonable. And, and again, you're right. And absolutely pointing out the fact that all pain syndromes, you cannot just approach, you know, pain by itself, that you have to approach, you know, the whole patient. And that absolutely means dealing with things like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for depression and anxiety and all those other things. And they definitely throw those out in the guidelines too. So yeah, yeah, terrific. Well, like I said, I I think that's terrific. And and I appreciate your time, John, for coming again, your expertise is always welcome on Game Changers. So uh, hopefully you'll uh, uh, come on as we have more uh, studies in, in this area. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this uh, episode of uh, Game Changers. Again, anyway, that's it. We will talk to you next week. But remember, until then, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thank you for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes below and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com. We curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine and then deliver it to you. Join today and connect your learning to practice.